I think, you know, for a lot of interactions, we bring, we bring a story to that, you know. We bring, like, we might see someone and straight away, unconsciously, we have the bias that comes up. Oh, this person doesn't look like the kind of person that I would normally hang around with or they listen to heavy metal and that's just weird and I don't like heavy metal, so we're not going to have anything in common. There are so many stories that are running through our mind. When we're able to just calm that down, when we're able to just, ah, just be with ourselves, we're able to meet someone as they really meet us. And that's when all the stories are gone. You know, that's when we're not trying to get anything out of them. That's when we're not trying to manipulate this conversation for our own benefit. We can just have this really beautiful heart-to-heart connection. And for me, I think that's like, that's what gives me the most joy is to just mm-hmm. see people, you know, just really see people and, and not when they're at their best, but just to see people when they're at their worst and to, to see like the human, the human spirit when it's suffering and it's desire to not want to suffer less. And I think it's a, a really, really um, profound experience to just listen, mm. not bring our shit, not bring mm-hmm. our stories to the conversation and to, to actually offer ourselves, you know, to give ourselves in that moment to, to something that we might not get any benefit from. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self, with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast and thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a movement. Today, offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind, and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more, or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. I'm so pleased to introduce you to my next guest. Today, Manaj Dias is a Buddhist meditation teacher and the chief of A-Space, a meditation studio in Melbourne. But before the here and now, he once identified as a corporate businessman who was suffering from anxiety, insomnia and disordered eating. Manaj came on recommendation from a beautiful listener, thank you, and what he offers us in this honest conversation is incredible perspective across a really diverse range of topics. Manaj shares how he came to practice and teach Buddhism, why spirituality should be playful, I love that, how to be with the totality of our experiences, why enlightenment isn't a destination, but rather than a state of consciousness available to all of us at any time, the lack of diversity and inclusion in the wellness space, our collective need for men to be more vulnerable, and so much more. This is a beautiful, lean-back conversation. I hope you can feel his gentle and welcoming energy. Here's Minaj and I for Offline. We recorded this on a video call, and we began our honest conversation with him sharing his journey into Buddhism.
Yeah, so I was born in Sri Lanka. Um, I was born in uh, a little small village called Watapidiwala, which um, if you ask me to tell you where exactly on the map of Sri Lanka that is, I wouldn't know. But I remember growing up um, from a very young age and I was surrounded by temples. Um, there were monks that were constantly in our house because we were you know, a Buddhist family. And um, we used to do these things called danes, which were like celebrations for people that had passed in our life. So uh, monks would come, you know, once a month and we would cook for them and feed them and give them money for clothes. And they would chant and would, we would meditate and go through the rituals. So from a young age, um, that was kind of surrounding me in Sri Lanka. And um, I remember a story my, my dad actually tells people now. Uh, now that I'm actually doing this sort of work, was that when we were young, he had this fear that I was going to be a monk. Um, so, you know, whenever I would see monks on the streets, when we were driving in the car, we'd be in a van and I'd kind of get up and I'd look at them and I'd kind of put my hands together and, and bow. Wow. And he used to tell my mum, he's like, no, no, keep him away from the window. Like, I don't want him to, to be a monk. And um, that's like my earliest memory of, of Buddhism. But... Um, I moved to Australia with my family when I was six years old. And, you know, even though we still had that element um, in our life, it wasn't every day. And I definitely wasn't surrounded by it, you know, in far north Queensland where I was you know, raised initially. And I kind of went away from the practice and, and away from the philosophy for the ma majority of my life. And it wasn't until I was um, really sick, actually, that I, um, I found my way back through a very, very strange set of circumstances to uh, a Buddhist meditation teacher mm. who um, really introduced me to the other side of Buddhist practice because all I'd really known was the ritual, um, the prayers, the chanting. Um, but I was really introduced to Buddhist meditation practice and, and that really transformed my life. Um, I studied with him every day for six years um, I eventually thought I was going to be a monk and, and that was kind of circling around in my head. Um, but I never really had the courage to go ahead and, and do it. You know, I loved the footy too much. I had a girlfriend at the time. Um, I didn't know how I was going to let go of all of those things. And, um, you know, then I kind of followed this path and I traveled overseas. I studied with some Buddhist meditation teachers, um, Dr. Miles Neal, Sharon Salzberg, uh, Scott Tusa. And um, when I came back, my teacher just asked me to teach. And um, that's really how I kind of started on this path. Um, I will preface this by saying like there's levels of uh, being a Buddhist meditation teacher. Um, one is probably the, the introductory level of, of where I'm at in terms of my journey. Like I've been doing this for about nine years. Um, and I don't teach what's called the Dharma. The Dharma is, you know, the Buddhist teachings uh, in its entirety. Uh, what I teach is... Uh, almost the, the introductory steps towards teaching the Dharma. So um, you might find a lot of other Buddhist meditation teachers that teach in Vipassana centers and insight meditation studios. They'll teach quite extensively um, the, the teachings of the Buddha, where I'll be the introduction to that, the step towards that. Mm. Isn't and, it fascinating um, that you've been doing it for nine years and you preface it by saying you're kind of the entry-level the level one, like it's quite um, an incredible parallel to how we view success today and expertise yeah. today. Because if you asked me, I'd say, well, I've been a journalist for 12 years, so that makes me an expert in my field. 
Yeah. You know, but yeah. for such a vast body of knowledge, it's like it, you know, how long it takes to actually, yes. Yeah. And, and the really interesting thing is it's not like studying a, a textbook, you know, it's like literally studying your own mind. So it's almost like how long is a piece of string? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the more I learn about my own mind, the more I realize I know nothing, you know, about anything. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real dichotomy. Mm, I'm realizing this myself and I was sharing with you before we started recording um, very new, I guess I'm seven or eight months into um, being a Vedic medita- a meditation student and um, it's the exact same thing. Like I kind of thought I knew what was going on and now I feel like I'm entirely back to square one and that's both exciting and terrifying at the same time some days because yeah. as you why, know. Why is that? Why does that scare you? Um, I think for someone who's been in the space of communicating um, I've communicated a lot and and mm. now I kind of look reflect back on what I've communicated and mm-hmm. I kind of want to do I want to have another shot at that um, <laughs> but that's the beauty of the work I'm doing now is you know I'm able to kind of help share the way I'm seeing the world and certainly what I'm learning about myself through the podcast but um yeah, but yeah some days I'm scared like if I think if I google myself gosh <laughs> there's a lot of me thinking I know yeah <laughs> And you know what, like if I can, if I, if I can offer something as well to, to that, like there are, there are things also that I've done in the past that I'm like, whoa, and things that I've said, like, whoa, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I also am sometimes struck by that. But also like, you know, nine years of practice and, you know, sorry, 12 years of practice, nine years of teaching. And, you know, the moments that I get so angry sometimes that I'm like, whoa, like I just haven't gotten anywhere. Um, and that's actually, that's our conditioning, you know, mm. um, from a very young age. And like you said, like, you know, what our definitions of success and, and things like that are, the reality is what's needed in those moments is, is the compassion, you know, the compassion to, uh, of recognizing that we're just human. And, and as humans, we are not like this one fixed entity. You know, we're not just all of a sudden enlightened and we'll stay at this level for the end of time. It's that we're always coming in and out of moments of, of um, insight and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, similar to you, I'm, there are moments I look back and I'm like, well, scary. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I wonder whether it would be helpful for the audience, so the listeners, for you to, as much as you can, and I know we don't have a lot of time, is give us some, can we do Buddhism fundamentals? Is that too expansive do you think for, um, but if I think about you know as I apply that thinking to Vedic I can kind of summarize some of it in themes but it might be helpful um, for you to share a little bit about the the practice and the philosophy yeah yeah sure and you know like you said it's uh, it's like opening up a can of worms totally. um, you know talking about the fundamentals yeah. but you know in a, in a nutshell uh, Buddhism um, and a lot of people refer to it as a philosophy as opposed to a religion. And it really depends which way you look at it. But um, the story really begins with a man, you know, a man like uh, you and I, a human being, that uh, was suffering. Um, he named, his name at the time was Siddhartha Gautama. And he was suffering in the way that many of us probably suffer these days. You know, he had an anxiety. He had a fear of death. Um, he had stress in his own way. And... Um, he was named the Buddha because he found a way to liberate himself from the suffering that he experienced. So suffering is fundamental to Buddhist practice. Uh, not suffering as in welcoming suffering, but more the 
understanding that suffering is present in everyday life. And when we talk about suffering, it sounds very morbid. You know, it's like, oh, Buddhism sounds really lame. There's so much suffering, blah, blah. But if you think about it, like you and I are now sitting on these nice, comfortable chairs. But if we sat on these chairs for two hours, there would be some suffering. Uh, if our conversation wasn't going so well and if we didn't like each other, they're suffering. Uh, if I realized I, I left uh, the iron on, like, and that anxiety is going to be running through my mind, they're suffering. So suffering is almost unavoidable in, in our life. And a lot of the, the suffering that we experience um, can be put down to our cravings, you know, things that we crave and things that we are avoiding, so aversion and, and craving, but also clinging and attachment. You know, these are central themes within Buddhist practice. So um, if you think about, you know, fundamentals in Buddhist practice, the, the four noble truths are probably something that um, a lot of people can wrap their heads around. Uh, the first truth is like, you know, life contains shitty things. Like, yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's unsatisfactoriness, stress, anxiety, breakups, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the second noble truth is, yeah, like a lot of that suffering is caused by our attachment or more succinctly, our desire for things to be different to how they really are, you know. The tr third noble truth is there's actually a way to, to not suffer, you know, and the fourth noble truth is called the um, Eightfold Path. So it's almost like the, the Buddhist roadmap to healing yourself or not suffering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, intertwined in the eight noble truths is ethics, wisdom, and, and meditation practice. So for us, um, just sitting down and meditating all of our lives won't alleviate all the suffering that we experience. There, we have to look at the way in which we're operating, the way in which we're, we're living and the things that we're doing. Um, and also we have to use that wisely, mm -hmm. you know, so to cultivate wisdom. Um, so I don't know if I've, I've really butchered that explanation, but I, I tried to be I don't think you have at all. And I appreciate you explaining it in a way that, you know, even somebody who's never read about it or isn't curious about it would be able to sort of get around it as well. There's obviously so many um, – there's so much relatability with um, Vedic fundamentals as well there. Like, have you explored, how much have you explored that practice, if at all? Yeah, so I, I've had a lot of my friends are, are Vedic meditation teachers. Actually, one of my best friends is a Vedic meditation teacher. And, um, you know, I've had really healthy discussions um, with them around uh, Vedic meditation and the principles of the practice. And um, I think it's, it's a wonderful practice. And you know, this is, for me, like the beauty of uh, wellness, if we can call it that these days, is that there isn't one way up the mountain. Mm -hmm. There are so many different ways up the mountain and um, so many different paths and avenues. And I think it's a really exciting time for a lot of people because, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, we had to really travel halfway around the world to meet a teacher that taught, you know, Vedic or to meet a teacher that taught Buddhist meditation. But now, you know, like our conversation today, they're almost available on Instagram. We can mm -hmm. connect with them. We can set up a meeting. We can set up a time and, um, and our practice can, can go from there. So in terms of the Vedic practice, I think it's really wonderful. And mm. I think people, um, whatever they connect to and whatever gives them relief is, is amazing. I couldn't agree more. And I, I do say this a lot, like anything that helps us explore self and get in touch with self or our higher self, mm. it's got to be a good thing. You know, I'm like into astrology and, you know, sometimes in some conversations people roll their eyes and go, oh. but it's like, you know what, that just works for me and I, I enjoy it and mm. it, it helps me get to know myself better so it's not, not a bad thing. 
Um, yeah. You So you said you spent um, six years um, with your teacher and mm. I was reading that you'd been on numerous silent retreats in that time as well. Um, I wanted to talk about um, our entry into, I guess, spirituality or um, committing ourselves or devoting ourselves to a, a philosophy through mm. the lens of our loved ones. And I ask that question because I think perhaps when we commit ourselves so fully to a practice, it changes the way we're in the world and it also changes mm. our relationships with the people in our lives. And it yeah. can feel, not always, but it can feel threatening to our loved ones because we almost, it seems like we're being taken away or that they're losing us to something that they don't understand or aren't interested in understanding. Yeah. What was your experience with that? Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a, such a wonderful question that I haven't been asked before. Um, you know, there was that time where my parents were really worried I was going to, to be a monk, that I was going to go to Sri Lanka and take robes, and that was the last they were going to see of me. Um, but they also saw what I was like beforehand, and they saw that, you know, I was a, I was a successful, um, I was in marketing and advertising, I was a successful um, corporate businessman, I had all this money, I had, you know, lots of friends, but I was deeply unhappy, you know, I was suffering, I had really bad anxiety, extreme uh, insomnia, I eventually ended up having like an eating disorder and, and going through all these different um, health conditions and for them, it was like, which one is the lesser, <laughs> lesser evil, you know? But I think the, um, the really interesting for me is that people really fear what they don't understand. And for a lot of people, um, there's a lot that, that, that they don't understand. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like when I came back from one of the retreats, I think I was just so full of love. Like I actually felt for the first time in my life, this unconditional love for, for everyone, for random people that I was seeing on the street <laughs> and people I was, you know, that were, I was in conflict with. And it was just this unbelievable um, compassion and love. And when my mum and dad saw me when I got back from this retreat, I think they saw it in my eyes. They're like, there's something that's changed. And, you know, I really, in our tradition, we believe that things are transmitted. So teachings can be transmitted. Um, love and compassion can be transmitted. And I think at that moment, what they felt from me, they experienced within themselves, you know, like, oh, like I feel like he's a different person and so I feel beautiful. the love and kindness is emitting. And I think they, you know, really embrace that. Mm. Yeah. It's, um, it is interesting, um, your perspective on that. I've, I found that myself that, you know, some people in my life will tell me I've changed and, um, and they're really difficult conversations sometimes because mm. part of what I'm sort of sharing back to them is, have I changed or has your perspective of me changed? Mm. Um, and and if if you're willing to have a an open conversation about what it is that I'm exploring, like I'm so happy to do that. But I love that Vedic tenant about worthy inquiry. So until mm. I get it, then I'm not going to sort of just be blurting it out all the time. Absolutely. And I think that's a, it's a pitfall. A lot of people that have a, a really uh, intense or profound spiritual experience fall into is that, you know, like I think the first month that I came back from a retreat, I was telling everyone that meditation will fix every ailment in their, you know, in their life. Like, broke up with your girlfriend, meditate. You know, you're putting things, playing shit, meditate. meditate. Like, it was, it's ridiculous. And I think sometimes, like, you know, we, we get carried away because we're so excited. But, um, you know, sure, there are friends that have, that, you know, I've kind of parted ways from because their lifestyle hasn't really vibrated with my lifestyle. And, 
and that's okay. You know, I think we, we have these um, experiences in life where we come together and go away and come together and go away. And um, it's a beautiful, for me, a beautiful part of life because you don't know what to expect and, and everything is constantly changing. Mm. So for me, um, I also feel like, you know, that, that vibration is, is real and, and we do vibrate uh, at a different frequency when we're in alignment with something much deeper than ourselves. Mm-hmm. So nice. And I guess there's such a playfulness about it. Mm. If you can see it that yeah. way, you know, I'm trying to you know, think about that. I think spirituality has to be playful because we have a tendency to take it really seriously, you know, like it can be this big, heavy thing and um, really it should inform our life. Like meditation shouldn't ever be this thing that we do to get good at meditating. Mm -hmm. Uh, It should be something that allows us to get good at life. So um, that's really what what should Mm -hmm. inform uh, how we show up in the world. Mm -hmm. Of going in to then come out and take action. Mm, I didn't clock that absolutely. early, you know, to be honest, I was very, as so, so many new meditators, I was so focused on nailing the practice, you know, and then once I realized that that beautiful moment of surrender yeah. not only allowed me to transcend, but also to be able to take it out into my, to my life and, and bring that to my work and my relationships mm. and, and my sort of overall way of being it was actually the light bulb moment for me of like oh it's not the doing the meditation it's what the meditation allows me to do yeah absolutely and that that that's really you know it what does it allow me to do how does it allow me to show up in the world Mm -hmm. can i ask what your definition of self is how do you describe um the self yeah this is a really great question um you know, it's, 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 it's a nuanced response because, you know, in Buddhist practice, there is a, a view that there isn't a self. Uh-huh. Um, and the, the Pali word for that is uh, anatta, which means uh, non-self, you know, and, and that can be sometimes misinterpreted to mean that um, there is no fixed version of me. And that's true. Yeah, that's true in the sense that, we sometimes think that um, there is a soul that resides deep within. Um, you know, in the Vedic texts, you talk about Atman, and, and that's, that's there. In Buddhist practice, um, it's nuanced because even though we don't think there is a soul, we think there is a consciousness. Mm-hmm. So you could use them interchangeably almost, right? But the idea of self in, in Buddhist practice is something that's always changing. It's not fixed. It's not who we are. And it's constantly shape-shifting due to uh, causes and conditions. Uh, an example of that is you know, the person that I took to be me 12 years ago is a very, very different person uh, due to the causes and conditions that came around to you know, make me the successful entrep- uh, the businessman, the successful uh, father, the successful sportsman, blah, 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 blah. But the version of me that is now is also here due to causes and conditions. So... I had health scares that led me to meditation that allowed me to see my life in a very different way. So the version of me is very, very different to the version I was back then. And, you know, I could even argue the version that is me here sitting talking to you now is very different to the one that was there three days ago. Three days ago, I was sick. I had the flu. I was in bed. I didn't want to speak to anyone. I was oh, grumpy. No. I'm so glad you're and, better. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like this, this version of, of me that we think is, is so fixed is actually not. And given the right causes, given the right conditions, we can be anyone, we can change at, at any moment. And um, 
for me, that's actually quite liberating because I find this, uh, for a long time, I thought, you know, when I was struggling with anxiety, for example, I'm like, I am just this anxious person. Like, I, I can't see out of, like, out of this little prison that I've constructed for myself. And even when I was, you know, visualizing what life would be like in five years, like, I just thought this was something that was always going to be there. It was going to be debilitating in my life. But, um, but that wasn't true, you know. And things change and things evolve. And, and this idea of self is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what causes us suffering in, in the Buddhist philosophy is the identification with the self, mm-hmm. as in this is who I am. I am this meditation teacher. I have this role that I have to play in the world. Um, I am awakened. I am enlightened. And the moment that begins to shift, like tomorrow I could have a, a massive panic attack. Um, and then I'm like, oh, shit, I am that teacher that I've built up in my head who's had a panic attack and then there's so much suffering attached to that so mm. uh, you know in, in our tradition there isn't an idea of self and, and I think that's you know really liberating for us. Mm, it, it really is. I wonder that like, you said the word enlightenment and I've been pondering that word um, as I've explored Vedic more deeply. Um, what is your um, view on on that word? And it seems to me that in some sort of spiritual circles, it seems to be this destination. And what's coming up for mm. me is that perhaps we all just have an opportunity to be enlightened at any moment versus it be an arrival. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's such a loaded word, right? Enlightened. Mm. Like for anyone that doesn't meditate, they're like, what the yeah. are you guys talking about? <laughs> but, you know, in, enlightened... Um, I tend to use it interchangeably with awake, you know, awakened. Um, the reason I say that is like, I agree with you. There are little moments that we have the opportunity to, to find awakening, you know, that moment where we're in a relationship and we have this moment of clear seeing, we're like, this actually isn't going anywhere. You know, um, the moment where in a heated argument and we feel the anger rising in our body and we don't react. That's like a moment of awakening right there. Um, but in our tradition, like the, the full broader context of the meaning is the moment we are free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, so the moment we kind of let go of these afflictive emotions, then we experience what we call um, awakening or enlightenment. And depending on which branch of um, Buddhism you follow, you either become uh, an arahant, which is um, someone that is uh, attained a certain level through meditation practice um, or in the Mahayana tradition uh, of Buddhism, which is more the Tibetan style of practice, we become bodhisattvas. So um, almost like a, a mini a mini Buddha, you know, that, that hasn't enlightened until everyone is enlightened uh, mm-hmm. and then they reach their Buddhahood. Buddhahood. Mm-hmm. Love. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's really what it means, you know, the mm. Buddha, Buddha simply translates to someone that is awake. Okay. Well, I'm mm. glad I asked you that question. It actually wasn't on my list. <laughs> I asked Minaj for his advice on how we can sit in the shadow parts of ourselves, our shame, our grief, and our darkness. So often we dodge our pain and carefully craft a life that avoids all of our triggers and any suffering. But perhaps that means we're unhealed. I think we're missing such a beautiful opportunity if we keep avoiding that. Um, and, you know, that, that being with our experience, the totality of our experience is, again, central to my practice. Um, 
And, you know, my practice is these days it's evolved quite a lot to, to really sit and explore, you know, trauma. You know, what, what trauma have I experienced knowingly or unknowingly that is um, residing in my body? So it's a very embodied practice. Mm-hmm. We can spend our whole life navigating towards things that feel good and avoid things that feel bad. I mean, it's, it's Freud's like pleasure principle, right? Like always wanting to feel good, 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 good. And uh, the reality is like our life isn't like that. Inevitably, we are going to experience things that aren't good. And our ability to meet those moments with compassion, with kindness, with awareness is really the, the birthplace for our awakening. It's the birthplace for us to not suffer even more than we have to. Um, you know, for example, anger was something that I thought was very bad for a very, very long time. And I avoided it. You know, the way I'd avoid it, as soon as I'd get angry, I'd just leave a situation. I'd walk away and I'd just like suppress it. I'm like, no, don't feel this. This is bad. This is not what we're meant to do. Um, but anger can be tremendously useful, you know, when we know how to, to deal with it, when we know how to, to feel it within our body. Because anger is the motivator to, to leave like a, a job that isn't serving us, right? Mm-hmm. Anger is the motivator for us to get off our ass and, and you know, pick ourselves up off the mat and, and move forward. So um, I think we, we miss opportunities if we're constantly orientating our life towards things that feel good. And I think it's a very slippery slope because um, – Things that feel good will eventually not feel good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's also a, that's also a lesson and a learning within our practice. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of um, what comes along with us navigating towards what feels good is also control because mm. we try and control people and situations to ensure that they don't go down a bad path or if we don't feel good about it, we try and control it to get it to another point. And so there's a lesson there also, I think, I guess, in just surrender, letting go, like, yeah. 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 I think, I think surrender and, and wisdom, you know, they both come into, into, pla- into practice there, but, um, you know, controlling things is, is, I don't know. I don't know if that's ever worked <laughs> in any situation. Well, why you do know? we do but, it? It's um, the weirdest thing. It's like, it's, and that's our ego, yeah. I guess, right? It's just like constantly trying to make it feel like it's in control. Yeah. Of, and so it yeah, controls. And, Absolutely. And, and also it's, it's our way of protecting ourselves. You know, it's, it's our way of um, dealing with the fear that's arising that we don't, we don't know what's coming next. There's imminent danger. So you know, it's, a, it's a byproduct of our evolution as a species, but we have to be able to override that, you know, and that's where, you know, yours and my meditation practice really comes into play, being able to um, override that unconscious bias, being able to override that uh, habitual tendency mm-hmm. to reach for the phone or to go into that negativity bias. So uh, it takes practice for sure. It definitely does. Um, I'm finding that as I'm getting I don't know if the word's closer. I just feel like this sense of coming home into self, Mm. I guess, the more I meditate. Um, I also feel like just my entire presence has changed. Um, It feels like um, grace for me. That's what like comes up is just I feel this overwhelming Mm. sense of grace in and around my body. And um, I wanted to explore that with you. What is that? energy energy shift that happens to us like and I don't even know how to even unpack that Mm. question but like is it just the process of meditating every day and and finding that stillness that changes our 
physiology or? Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a number of things. Like I think, first of all, yes, the physiology definitely changes. Um, there's so much research that, that really validates the, the effects, you know, on the frontal lobe of the brain, the hippocampus from, from meditation practice, but also how it changes our immune system, how it changes the, the beating of the heart, how it changes, you know, microbiome and you know, gut flora and things like that. So there's a million things going on when we reduce the cortisol and the adrenaline in our bodies. So, you know, first of all, it's, it's that. But also I think it's a deep sense of presence. Like when we're so present to our experience, it is, it's grace, right? It feels beautiful. Like it feels blissful. It feels so tangible. Um, and you can't explain it to a lot of people, right? Mm. But it takes, uh, it takes practice and it also takes wisdom to, to kind of understand like that experience is uh, it's coming and it's going, it's coming and it's going. And um, it's just kind of part of our everyday life. Um, but, you know, like I also uh, encourage people not to get attached to that feeling of, um, of grace, of bliss, <laughs> because... It is, it is, it's very hard. It's very hard. But, um, you know, in, in my tradition, in my practice, we, we talk a lot about that because, you know, attachment, um, it can lead to suffering. We, there's attachment that we can't avoid. Um, and not all attachment is bad. I just want to kind of preface that as well. Like attachment is, is necessary, but it's the, it's the clinging to it. You know, it's the clinging to even our meditation practice, uh, that can sometimes be, be problematic and sometimes be dangerous um, because we, we have a fixed view on, on our life. We have a fixed view on what we need to thrive and survive. And then our power is always outside of ourselves. You know, mm. it's never just in this moment. It's always reliant on, on something else. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I've been um, very fascinated by the Vedic um, concept of charm and you know, for a while there, I was like, how do I distinguish charm from desire? Because if it feels charming mm. to me, then how do I know that that's just not something that I'm, my ego's desiring, say? And then, you know, when my teacher told me that, okay, when you think about it, this thing that you want, if that is charming and you don't get it, will you still feel fulfilled? And if the answer is yeah. yes, then that's charm. If the answer is right. no, then that's desire. And I thought that was such right. an amazing way of explaining, like, if I don't get that outcome, I'm going to be upset or sad or hurt. Okay. Yeah. Then we know that's not, you know, there's no purity in that. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, like, I think, again, there's confusion around uh, Buddhism and desire because we think that, you know, we're so against desire. And, you know, that's not really the cra- case. It's the, it's the clinging to things. It's mm-hmm. the craving things. Desire is, is imminent, you know, the desire for you and I to not suffer is, is such a healthy desire because that's why we meditate, that's why we take care of ourselves. Um, but then it's the, it's the clinging to certain things and the craving for that creates the, the, you know, the problems for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of difficulty in being present in each moment today. Um, as you know, there's so many moments, there's so many platforms we're just bombarded with distractions. <laughs> um, and so I wonder, what is your advice for us to be both adaptive so we're still um, keeping up with society and technology and the way the world is, where the world is moving to? 
how do we balance that with remaining present? Because that's something I'm challenged with at the moment. Like I'm exploring this deeply spiritual practice and this body of knowledge and my appetite for it is just, it feels like insatiable, you know, but then I've got this podcast Mm. and this Instagram account and all these email (laughs) accounts and everything that requires me to stay connected so that I can continue to earn a living and share my work. Yeah. I think it's, it's listening to the body, you know, and the body, we spend a lot of time thinking about the mind. We, we cognize a lot. And I think societally we live in a very neck down culture, you know, sorry, uh, a neck up culture mm-hmm. um, in which we are analyzing where we're planning, we're thinking, we're cognizing. Um, but if we, you know, bring our awareness to our body and we just sit with what is the body feeling we know pretty quickly like you know we're under stress or or we're anxious or we're scared or we're sad and I think that's the first way that I kind of pay attention and I realize that whoa I need to step away from my computer for a little while or I need to step away from my phone for a little while like my body is you know it's feeling like tight and you know like in Mm -hmm. stress the shoulders roll out roll in that like my jaw gets clenched and you know my wrists start to do that so that's one way but you know, I think what you've outlined is a very common problem for, for people these days. How do we find our spirituality and how do we maintain um, a normal, quote-unquote, life with all the technology that's, that's there? And I think it's, it's by paying attention to what our body is telling us. Mm. You know, that, that for me is where it begins. But also it takes practice. You know, we uh, as humans, as human beings love dopamine so we love like anytime we check the phone or the or the internet and we see the little red notification tab like that makes us feel good so i think we need to know sometimes that we are like those little rats that are running around trying to get the cheese you know um we're hooked on on these things Mm. um and then we need to this is what i do anyway i i actually plan my time away from my phone or my, uh, my computer. So, you know, I go on retreats regularly. I'll just uh, take like a, a day away from my phone or even the evening away from my phone. Or with, you know, Instagram, for example, I'll, um, I'll plan everything out like, you know, three or four days beforehand and I'll let like a, this application post for me, you know, that way I don't have to constantly be on my phone and, and do things. So I think it takes these days a little bit of planning to, mm. to actually create these pockets of stillness. Mm-hmm. I'd like to um, step change a little bit um, and discuss inclusivity and diversity in the wellness space. Mm. I know it's something that you are actively advocating for. Um, as a teacher, you've said that you've learned to repeatedly ask yourself who is not in the room and why. Mm. I found that extremely profound um, when I read that. I wondered, um, and, and, and the lens I have there is I'm doing the exact same thing with this podcast. Mm. Who, who isn't listening and why and who aren't I interviewing and why? Mm. And so kind of checking my own unconscious bias as well. Mm. Um, I wondered what answers have come up for you. So when you look out into the rooms and you ask yourself that question, why? Because, you know, and we will talk a bit about it, but like is spirituality and wellness accessible actually? Yeah. And first of all, thank you for, for asking yourself that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's not something many of us do. And, I, and again, I don't think it's something that we consciously avoid, 
I think it's something that we've been conditioned to, to not talk about, you know, or, or not think that there is a problem. Um, I spend a lot of my time teaching in the US um, and there's a big problem, you know, and for the first few times I was going there and, you know, race and, you know, diversity and inclusion um, was talked about. I was like, oh, I'm so glad I live in a country like Australia where this stuff's not an issue. And then I came back, I'm like, hang on, this is a big mm -hmm. issue here. You know, like I have been teaching for, you know, 10, 12 years. I've been involved in meditation studios and yoga studios. And every time I go there, like I, I don't see diversity there. I see very beautiful, pretty blonde girls mm -hmm. that are skinny in, you know, in certain, you know, brands, tights. And, and I'm like, oh, this is cool. And, and you work back from that. You're like, okay, why is it there's one very specific um, type of person coming here? Mm. And then you look around at some of the posters that are advertising yoga and you realize they look exactly like the people that are coming. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the, um, the studios, how they've been set up, and you look at the teachers that are up there teaching, and they look exactly like the people that are practicing. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the prices for some of these things, like $27, $30, $35 for a, a yoga class or you know, a CrossFit class or whatever it is. Like, and you're like, wow, like, there are so many barriers for people to – to find wellness. Yeah. So for me, like wellness to participate, right? And I think it's it's hard for people that are in dominant culture mm -hmm. to to understand what it's like for, for a minority, seeing themselves not represented uh, in the spaces that they're going to. And for some people, it's it's actually they feel unsafe. You know, they're like, will I be accepted? Will I, in my body and the way I smell and the way I look, Will I be accepted in a space that feels almost like too good for me and too clean for me and, and, um, and different for me? So for me, it's, it's a passion to, to just create, first of all, the conversation around this, mm -hmm. which you know, I don't feel is, is really happening in, in Australia, um, given we are such a multicultural country. Um, but also like, for me, it's important that we have representation on so many different levels. Um, representation from teachers, representation from people in administrative roles within these organizations, um, studio owners, you know, I, I, like I said, I've been teaching for almost a decade and the number of men of color teaching yoga and meditation, I think, I, I think it's one or two I've met. And um, yeah, and you know, like we know mental health isn't doesn't discriminate you know mm -hmm. we know like uh suffering doesn't discriminate so there's there's lots of questions uh there for me and they're not easy answers to come up with mm -hmm. and um yeah it's, it's definitely something that i that i'm more passionate about exploring you know yes. here and, and overseas yeah i wonder if you have advice for anyone listening who perhaps does own a studio or who is in a um, position of authority that could make decisions on behalf of their business, what can mm. we be doing? Like how, I, I just wonder, how do we actually get into some solutions and start solving the problem? Is it about um, more diverse advertising and marketing campaigns? Yeah, I think it's, it's, again, it's a nuanced answer because a lot of studios are driven by money mm -hmm. like they need to they need to first of all stay afloat right 
and um, they can't drop their prices, which first of all will include a lot more people. <laughs> so you know, dropping prices is something that they have to to think about. But also, I think it's it's in different ways. Like how how do they not create a safe environment for um, LGD LB? I always stuff up the, the acronym LGBTQI plus. Yeah. <laughs> I've said it that many times. Um, now I'm getting it right. Yeah, like how do they not make it safe for, for people from that community mm. and from people of colour and for disabled communities, you know, people that are, are not able-bodied? Like what is it of their studio that creates that? It could be the style of classes that they teach. Um, it could be the, the t- teachers. And I think they have to be really honest and, and ask themselves, like, do they care? And uh, for some people it's like, no, we just care about money. And oh, who are those okay. people? Own Surely that. they'll care. We just have to own it and just be authentic, you know, mm. because the other, the other pitfall of this, the other really interesting development is that a lot of people want to talk about it because it's almost on trend to yes. talk about, you know, diversity and inclusion and then not do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's a big conversation and it's opening a can of worms. And mm. I think if you're really dedicated to it, there's people that will support you because mm-hmm. this is the other thing. I think studios think that they're not going to, to be able to profit from this, but there is such a multicultural freaking country here in Australia <laughs> that if we become more inclusive, their profits would double and quadruple. It's only um, good for business, you know. It's only good and for business, And then I guess yeah. there's a, the parts of, of me that – as again, as I explore different modalities, um, when there is um, money tied to it and a business tied to it, sometimes as a student, it's harder to be in those spaces because you're like, oh, am I just a revenue stream, you know, but mm. like you're teaching this thing that's helping me so much, but then everything I want to do tends to come with a new price tag included, you know. Um, yeah. So I've been sort yeah. of sitting with that myself and, and understanding that like, I'm a businesswoman myself. I understand we all need to make um, money, um, but yeah. it's an interesting, interesting one. And, you know, thank you for sharing, sharing that. I felt that was a very honest reflection. Um, I think it's that's true, you know, like for me it's like how much – can we commodify spirituality? Mm-hmm. And um, there's, for me, like, yes, I, we as teachers need to survive, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. How you know, much like, money do we really we have, need? Like, how much money do we really need, you know? And, um, yeah, it's something that, you know, I don't have a, an answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try to keep uh, a space, my studio's prices uh, as affordable as possible and, you know, my private work but I you know I encourage a lot of teachers to to really think about long term like how much can you commodify your spirituality and and what is it worth because sometimes in the pursuit to survive we um lose the the real reason we got into this yes in the first place yes that's probably a more articulate way of saying how what I was trying to express is mm-hmm. why are we here you know yeah is is does that get muddled up in um in, in the money and the success of it and having the biggest studio and the most students and the most Instagram followers and yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about mindfulness and mm-hmm. I want to explore that because it's one of those very overused words in the wellness space <laughs> and I think it's gotten a bit of a bad rap um, along with self-care, but we won't talk about self-care. Um, 
How are you seeing mindfulness <laughs> express itself in our lives today through your work and I guess all the students you're meeting and teachers you're connecting with? How are you seeing mindfulness express yeah. itself and then perhaps how will it in the future? Because I guess with the rise of technology and the more connected we are, it's like I'm, you know, as everyone is very deeply worried about the connections that we're losing um, and this ability yeah. to be in the present moment as well. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, there was a really interesting article that came out recently, really, uh, it was in The Guardian, it was panning mindfulness. And uh, a lot of people were like, this, you know, this article was saying that essentially mindfulness um, is training us just to, to bring all of our attention to the present moment and for us to, to dull our emotions and our, you know, sensations so we can, you know, essentially be on this capitalistic uh, treadmill for you know, a little while longer. And, um, you know, for me, I've seen mindfulness evolve in this country from something uh, that only a few people did to something that everyone wanted to do to now something corporates really want to buy and purchase. Mm -hmm. And um, on, a, on a baseline level, I think, for a person, like we all need healing in some way, shape or form. We all need to, to find a sense of connection to our bodies, to, you know, a sense of meaning and purpose. But also I think that mindfulness kind of came out of the Buddhist framework, you know, which was taught in a sutta called the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, and it was only one little element to a bigger framework of teachings that really taught us not just to, you know, bring our attention to the present moment, but to also notice what is causing us to suffer along the way. And I think this is really what's missing is that we're, we're taught just to be present, just to be present, just to be present. But we're not looking at what, why, like what's distracting us, what you know, us like what's making us suffer first, in the first yes. place. Oh, yeah. Cool. So like, you know, it's almost like we're, we're putting a bandaid sometimes, you know, over what's happening instead of looking at, you know, the systems that oppress us, you know, our addictions that are there. Like, you know, I sometimes think I have an addiction to my phone. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely am addicted to coffee. Uh, you <laughs> I know, gave I, I up know, coffee like, two months ago. Bloody hell. Yeah. Oh. Right? And like, you know, there are, there are all these, um, different things that cause us suffering. And I think, you know, to reduce mindfulness just to attention can be problematic. Mm -hmm. I think we have to, to hold our attention, but really we need to, to look from the lens of the, the bigger picture as in, you know, like it's, we need to explore not just being calm, but like what is causing us to suffer in the first mm -hmm. place. That is such a great answer. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Minaj is an advocate for something he calls conscious connections. I wanted to know what he meant by that, especially in our hyper-focused and hyper-connected world. And also, I wanted to know what a conscious connection actually feels like. You know, the, the word conscious connections really came from an event we once ran, just for a bit of fun, around the, the format of speed dating. Um, oh, cool. We had a couple of people that were coming to our studio and they were like, they were like, you know, it's so hard to, to find like, you know, a guy or a girl, you know, like, why can't I just find a guy that meditates or something like that? And, you know, it was just literally a, a bit of fun in which we just put up this thing one day and ran an event. We're like, okay, let's do a, like a, a speed dating type of event where, you know, you, we meditate beforehand. 
we'll do some practices like eye gazing and like deep listening um, and, you know, create these set of questions that create like vulnerability and connection. And it was like a hit. It was like crazy. Um, but we, we said, we prefaced this workshop by saying, hey, it's not about finding a, a date. It's about just connecting consciously, right, to, to random people. And it was so profound because, you know, I think amidst all of the, the glorification of mindfulness and, you know, Vedic meditation and apps and wellness and blah, 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 there is still, I feel, this deep sense of disconnection from each other. Yes. We, um, we can feel so alone. You know, and um, we can have a thousand, like hundred thousand Instagram followers, and, and still feel very alone. So to be able to to connect consciously um, is in itself a form of healing. You know, to be able to be seen by someone else and to to see someone else is such a profound experience. Mm. Um, in a Buddhist framework, sangha community in itself is is a spiritual practice. So I think um, you know, conscious connections has kind of evolved from that. But essentially, it boils down to being able to just meet um, meet people as they as they present themselves to you, and to connect to them on on a deeper level, on a, on a real level. Mm. How do we do that? What like do you have any advice for for us on like I know that's quite like a practical question, but what do we do to do that? Yeah. <laughs> because we're losing our social skills because we're so hooked on what's on our screens. Mm. I think, you know, for a lot of interactions, we bring, we bring a story to that, you know. We bring, like, we might see someone and straight away unconsciously we have the bias that comes up. Oh, this person doesn't look like the kind of person that I would normally hang around with or they listen to heavy metal and that's just weird and I don't like heavy metal so we're not going to have anything in common. There are so many stories that are running through our mind. When we're able to just calm that down, when we're able to just ah, just be with ourselves, we're able to meet someone as they really meet us and that's when all the stories are gone. Mm. You know, that's when we're not trying to get anything out of them. That's when we're not trying to manipulate this conversation for our own benefit. We can just have this really beautiful heart-to-heart connection. And for me, I think that's like, that's what gives me the most joy is to just see people, you know, Mm -hmm. just really see people and and not when they're at their best, but just to see people when they're at their worst and to, to see like the human, the human spirit when it's suffering and it's desire to not want to suffer less. And I think it's a, a really, really um, profound experience for us to just listen, mm. not bring our shit, not bring mm-hmm. our stories to the conversation, and to, to actually offer ourselves, you know, to give ourselves in that moment to, to something that we might not get any benefit from. And the, the interesting thing is, in that process, we get so much from it, but usually we go in with that intention. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, it's probably a quite a good segue into um, my next question. You are a big advocate for male vulnerability or men being more vulnerable. Mm. Um, while they're like a majority of my listenership, um, it's just a bunch of really beautiful women um, who <laughs> I adore and extremely loyal and invested in this journey. There's also some young men who also listen and I would like there to be more men who listen. And so um, yeah. I'm hoping that we can, um, part of this conversation might speak to them a little bit. Um, what does a vulnerable man look like 
Um, and then for for us women, how do we become allies to, I guess, creating those through ways and entry points for you guys to be more vulnerable? Or if you are being vulnerable in the moment, how do we res- what do we respond with? Like, what do you need? Yeah. So there's two parts to the question. Like, firstly, I think women have been doing so much that they don't need to do anything. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's one like pitfall like that women sometimes face is like, oh, we need to be this way for a man. I'm like, no, like it's actually time that men actually own their shit, right? Mm. Like we have been oppressing women since the dawn of time. I don't think women need to do anything. They, they mm. need to leave relationships, in my opinion, that aren't serving them. They need to speak up like they, or not speak up. They just need to be themselves. I don't think that um, women need to do anything. Um, what I do think needs to happen is for men to, to just be in their bodies, first of all. They need to, to feel their bodies. They need to feel like when anger comes up, feel that anger. You know, express it in healthy ways. Um, sit with that experience. Talk to other men. Talk to women. Talk to anyone. I think it's, um, especially in my experience in, in, in this country, like we don't have those really effective role models mm. because we, we have larrikins. You know, we, we have larrikins and that's like Australian culture. And we look at that and we think, oh, it's, it's okay to just, you know, joke around and say this and, and say that. And I think, my opinion, it's it's harmful. I think for for a man to to really evolve, in my opinion, and this is just little old me, I think we we need to to move beyond this idea of being the the, the larrikin and be like an embodied man. And and part of that is to feel the the full gamut of our feelings, from sadness to fear to depression to anger to to everything you know to sadness um i think we need to be able to to feel it to sit with it um and to acknowledge that we have played a role in our suffering but we also have the ability to to move beyond that and if not for us for the women in our life you know Mm. our partners girlfriends wives future daughters daughters i think um there's a tremendous there's a tremendous opportunity for men to evolve and um you know, it's it's. I think it's high time because I really feel for for women, you know, especially in in this country. I know, um, and that was part of my line of questioning yeah. was, you know, how can we be facilitators? And because we already are such great facilitators anyway, and our sort mm. of like emotional capacity is, as you know, enormous. And so when a man mm. presents as vulnerable. How do we hold that? Like, what do you need from us in the moment? But I loved your answer that we just need to do fuck all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I, think, yeah. I think that's also, that might be conditioning, right? That we have totally. to somehow. Meet you there. Give, mm-hmm. give, yeah, meet us there. And, you know, like, I mean, I, I don't have the experience of being a woman. You probably give much better advice to women than I do. But um, I think, you know, it's when, it's when, for example, my white friends tell me, like, you know, tell me, tell me about what it's like you know, tell me how I'm oppressing, you know, people of color. And I'm like, you know what? It's not my job to do that. Mm. It's not my job to do that. Um, because almost it can be a, a reliving of trauma over and over again, having to, to share this thing, you know? Yes. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a, a moment here where people have to, to take accountability 
and um, and really be willing to to do this mm-hmm. you know, themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad we spoke about that. I have a couple more questions for you, and then I will let you go. Um, I, no, it's a great question. Keep asking. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> I explore the emotional landscape of Instagram um, a lot on this podcast with my guests. And as I was saying to you before we recorded, a lot of them have really big um, Instagram followings and, and they're on there a lot. We're all on there a lot. You use Instagram in such a um, gentle and um, beautiful way. Um, I wondered what advice you have for the people listening um, who have identified that they have an unhealthy relationship with the platform. What advice do you have for us in, um, I don't know, like how do we, how do we move on from it? How do, when you're on there, how are you on there? You know, I think like it's a slippery slope, right? Sometimes we create these personas that people love more than who we actually really are. And we become so identified with who the world sees that we forget who we actually are. Um, and, yeah, sure, like I've had moments where I found myself getting caught up in that, you know, thinking like, oh, should I write this? It's not going to get that many likes compared to if I put up a, a photo of me in a singlet. In the- <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's going to get like all these likes. And, and I think it's I, – I, I've learned through trial and error, if I'm honest, um, and for me, I'm at a position now where it's like the social media tomorrow can disappear and I'll still be comfortable with who I am. And I think it takes um, a level of honesty with yourself to, to get to that place. Um, and it takes some deep soul searching. And you need to be comfortable with losing everything on social media. That's when you know you have a healthier relationship with it. You know, and um, I really encourage people to to explore like life you know what is social media allowing you for to do i know it's like a business for some people and and that's great but if it's affecting your well-being then what's the cost you know and and that's something i can't really answer it's for it's for people to to inquire within themselves but i think that you know there's such a a beautiful life out there for us to live you know Mm -hmm. I'm, i'm constantly amazed that the generosity of of humans and and the human potential and creativity when I'm not on my phone, you know, yes. when I'm, when I'm not looking down, you know, and I can relate to people like nothing for me beats that, that it's important for individuals to consider it as well. And I invite people if they're going to post things to always ask a number of questions like, okay, is this true? What I'm going to write? Is this helpful? Uh, am I the one that should be talking about it? You know, um, and these are all, you know, processes that you go to to feel like you're putting something authentic in the world mm-hmm. because, um, you know, sometimes it can be alluring and tempting to, to just put something up just to get the likes. Um, yeah. But that's, that's when I'm satisfied after that, you know. So, yeah, I mean, mm. it's a very individual journey, mm, but it's really also a slippery advice. slope. Um, I wonder then if you could tell us, you know, with, with the idea of getting out there and living <laughs> our lives and, and growing and, and developing as people, what else can we be doing to nourish our spirits, you know, aside from meditation, which we obviously both love and is a huge part of our, our day? What else do you do um, to sort of get in touch with that deeper part of yourself and, and nourish? Friendship. Mm. You know, friendship for me is 
is so pivotal to, to my life. And there was a period when I was so deep in my practice that I became like this introvert that didn't want to hang out with anyone. And I wore like really weird clothes because I was scared to spend money because I was against money and all these different sorts of things. And I realized like, you know, you want to be in the world. And um, for me, having friends is so pivotal. And, you know, I use the word friendship loosely because, you know, my family, I'm, I want to be friends with them. And I think our ability to really have people that we can be vulnerable with, that we can talk to, that we can share, um, and that we can just be around their energy is so important. Mm. And uh, in Buddhist practice, we have this term called Kalyanamita, which is um, wise and spiritual friends. And, um, you know, these, these sorts of friendships are so pivotal in the spiritual part. You know, you probably experience it with your community right now where, you know, no matter what the day you're having, you go and hang out with them and all of a sudden you'll drop into this space of, ah, I kind of feel like I'm home. Mm-hmm. And, um, no, no, so for me, I think friendship's really important. And, and I also think, you know, not being attached to anything in any way is really important. Um, even our spirituality can, can be this attachment. You know, like, ooh, I'm a, I'm a meditator. I can't do this. Uh, I remember once I was out um, having dinner and I had a glass of wine, just one, and there was a student of mine and I was like, oh, shit. She's going to think I'm like this, like alcoholic. And you just, in my mind, just completely blew up, you know, bigger than it was. But my teachers always told me, like, not to identify with anything and don't even get identified with, you know, being this spiritual person that is pure and perfect. Like just live because, you know, life is messy and it's beautiful and it's brave, but, you know, why would you want it any other way? Mm. Well, I have a final question for you and I ask each of my guests the same question at the end of these interviews, Um, which I think now I know you've listened to at least one, you might know what it is, but maybe you've forgotten. Um, Offline (laughs) exists as an exploration of self and who are we without the labels that we put on ourselves or society puts on us. And so as you look into that sort of concept of true self and like you've sort of explained to me that even in the Buddhist view that it doesn't exist in a lot of ways, so maybe a harder question for you to answer perhaps. (laughs) Um, But when you're sort of sitting in true self, yeah. Who, who are you? Ooh, loving awareness. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Loving awareness, yeah. Just this ability to, to feel this uh, unconditional love for everything that is perceived and, and not perceived and, and my experience. That's a great answer. That is so nice. Gave me a little goosebumps. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you so much for being on my podcast. I really appreciate it. I knew we would have um, a really interesting conversation and we did. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them. <laughs>